you have any Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. We are uh, still working on an introduction uh, to Matthew, just kind of make sure that as we, we notice some things, so we just have a better understanding of what's going on in Matthew and why he wrote what he wrote and what is going on so that we can kind of see really the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament as well as the great importance of the life of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we continue our worship of you this morning, we ask for your blessing on your word. We ask as we continue our study of Matthew that you will again give to us insight that we may have a deepening understanding of Christ. That, Lord, there's things that we already know that remind us again of the greatness of Jesus. And Father, perhaps there may be a few new things we may learn that will enhance our understanding of you and your plan for us. We ask, Lord, that this time in your word will be beneficial. As, Father, we know that it will be because you've promised us that your word will never return void. We pray, Lord, to be used by your spirit in our lives to continue to shape our hearts and our minds and our lives to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We do thank you and ask these things in his name. Amen. So Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 2, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So we're looking at two words that are used quite a bit by Matthew throughout his book. And the first one is the word Lord. The word Lord is, is a title that is applied to Jesus. It's applied to Jesus by various persons many times throughout the book of Matthew. The word Lord appears approximately 79 times in the book of Matthew. And so the frequency of that alone makes really uh, the word Lord one of the most important Christological titles of Jesus in Matthew. Christological is another way of referring to Christ, but you can throw that around at lunch and make it sound like you really got your theology down. Um, and uh, that may help you uh, uh, in the eyes of others. In some of the context, uh, the title Lord emphasizes the authority of a person, but it can also refer to deity. And so the context sometimes will help us to understand what is being emphasized, and perhaps at times it's both. The Greek word, which is kurios, or, or kurios, is it's historically it is the concept of lordship that combines these two elements of both power and authority. Um, when you recognize the unity of these two things. It really only arises in an encounter with God when you're dealing with individuals. Um, and, it, and it's basically God who creates us with absolute power, but it is also the absolute authority of God which uh, gives us freedom rather than bondage to bow before him. And we'll see that as we move on. What is interesting is in the story where what we call the story of doubting Thomas, where the Lord appears, Thomas isn't there, then he's, just so, he's told that the Lord appeared, and he says, I don't believe it, uh, I need to put my hands in his side uh, and in, in the nail-scarred hands before I believe that, that he's risen from the dead. And so, next time they're together, Jesus shows up and Thomas is there. 
And of course, we know that when that happens, Thomas immediately just, boom, falls on his face before the Lord. So Thomas, at that moment, realized really the significance of the presence of a mortal wound in the body of a living man. He has these death wounds, and yet he is clearly alive. And so he uses the word Lord. He uses it in the absolute sense of the title of deity because he says, my Lord and my God. And as I was thinking about that and reading through some of the books that I'm looking at, one of the commentators said this. He said, except in Acts chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 7, there is no record that the word Lord was ever used again by any believers in addressing anyone other than God and Jesus. And the reason for that is the word Lord can be used in a secular sense. You know, individuals is whether he's the master and you're the slave or someone who's of high rank, you may use that word Lord. But for Christians, it, it instantly, after this, all these things took place, it was a word that was reserved only for Jesus Christ. They would never use it for anyone in the church, no matter what kind of rank that person had either in society or even how they were viewed within the church. Even the great apostles weren't addressed as Lord. I just, that was not done. So that, that word was designated in that sense. So as Christians, we often talk about the Lord and we never really think about the definition. It's not a bad thing because we all instantly recognize who we're talking about. We all know who we're, that we're talking about Jesus. And we already understand that we're talking about Jesus who is God, who has power, who has authority. This is kind of automatic with us. In the Septuagint, and again, remember the Septuagint, uh, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Sometimes in your notes in your Bible and reading a book, it may refer to the Septuagint by just the letters LXX, the Roman numerals for 70, and that's because it was 70 Jewish scholars that translated Hebrew into Greek. And so um, that is a significant help in studying the scripture. Uh, there are those who believe that the translation of the Septuagint was approved uh, by God because Jesus at times quoted from the Septuagint. And so they believe that that was done purposely to kind of put your stamp of approval that this is an accurate translation. So in the Septuagint, the, the title Lord is the preferred translation for the Hebrew divine name Yahweh. When it comes to the name of God, we, most of us recognize that whether it's the word Jehovah or Yahweh, that is the, the name of God. Uh, that is used in the Old Testament. And if you look at a literal translation, like Young's literal translation, you can find it on the internet, it's free. You'll see the word Jehovah, or you may see the word Yahweh, depending on, because uh, there's two different versions of Young's literal translation. And so it's always referring to, to that God. So that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a specific being that we're speaking of. We believe in the God of the Old Testament. We believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God that we worship is Jehovah. It is, it's Yahweh. That's who he is. That's how we identify him. He's not, there's no other name for him. Uh, there's another word that identifies the uniqueness of who he is, where we understand who we are talking about. Again, unlike in the English language, if you are talking to someone and they say to you they believe in God, you really have no idea what that means. You don't know who they're talking about unless you already know them really well. Like if I'm talking to Steve Posner, and then somehow Steve would say, well, I believe in God. I mean, I, you know, I, I have no doubt as to what he's talking about. He's not speaking of Buddha or anyone else. But in many contexts, if you don't know that individual well, that word has to be defined. 
right? And so there are times that it is actually appropriate for us to, uh, I usually don't say Yahweh because sometimes if an individual has a Jewish background, that's very offensive to them. They believe that you're taking the name of God in vain. But I have told individuals, and sometimes it's in the context of maybe speaking to someone who has a Muslim background, I would say that I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That clearly identifies who I'm talking about. So in the Septuagint, when they come across the word Yahweh, and they're going to translate it in the Greek, they most of the time use the word Lord. And so that's important for us to keep in mind as we read through the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 39, verse 3. So in the Septuagint, it reads, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. And that's the word Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the importance of that is because we know that it's been kind of a uh, controversy, normally outside of the church, but to some in the church, as to who is Jesus. And what we clearly, what, the reason why we're here together is because we do not believe that Jesus was just a good man. We're not here because we think he was just a good moral teacher. We don't believe that. We believe he is God. And so the Bible continues to make that abundantly clear in many different ways. And the word Lord here is that. So as Matthew writes, his, writes the gospel of Matthew, as he writes his gospel, he uses that term because his primary audience is Jewish, though it's for everyone, but it's primary Jewish, and he is clearly telling them who is Jesus. That Jesus is God. He's, he's making that abundantly clear for them as they read that. That is the importance of that. So again, if you just sit down and the only background you have is our culture and the English language, you're reading that, okay, well, you pick up that Lord is a, is a word that's used for, for Jesus, uh, but you're not always going to get the stress of what's going on there, what's being emphasized, and that is what is being emphasized. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That comes from Psalm 118, beginning in verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So from the Young's literal translation, it reads this way. A stone the builders refused hath become head of the corner. From Jehovah, or from Yahweh, hath this been. It is wonderful in our eyes. So again, recognizing how that is done is important so that we don't maybe allow the term Lord to somehow be weakened or only think that it means master. Because sometimes you'll read in some commentaries or in some books as they're talking about that the word Lord means master. It, it can mean master, but that just does not do it justice as to how he's using it. Uh, he, he means much more than that. Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8 identifies himself he says for the son of man is lord of the sabbath now when he says he's lord of the sabbath that's actually a very uh important profound statement that he makes the old testament text that referred to the lord in association with the sabbath clearly all refer to yahweh 
Yahweh is the one who instituted the Sabbath by his own example and commanded the Sabbath in the law. In fact, God frequently described the Sabbath as my Sabbaths. You'll find that in Exodus 31, Leviticus 19, and other various places. The Old Testament describes the Sabbath as a Sabbath to the Lord. So even though God created the Sabbath for man, for man to rest, it is, that was God's doing. God did that. He set aside that day. He is Lord. He is the authority. He is sovereign over the Sabbath. It's his. And that's what he says to them throughout the Old Testament. One commentator named Richard France says, to call a human being Lord of the Sabbath is to make the most extraordinary claim to an authority on par with that of God himself. So again, when, you, when we recognize that, when you come across this passage in Matthew 12, where Jesus referring to himself says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, we then should begin to get the weight of what he said. He is making a proclamation to them that he is equal. Remember, to be equal with God is to be God. Uh, because God has some unique characteristics. God is omniscient, means he knows everything. So if you're equal to God, you know everything. That's a unique status. It's a unique category. So claiming equality with God is not just, you're not just saying I'm a lot like God. You're not saying you're a lot like God. He is claiming to be God. And then in association with God being the Lord of the Sabbath, when you put these things together, as Jesus speaks to this Jewish audience, they know exactly what he's saying. And that's why there are times, and we'll see this as we go through Matthew, there are times that when Jesus will make a statement, they want to kill him because he's committed blasphemy. And in their mind, blasphemy requires one punishment, death. You just don't do that. And so here again, Matthew makes it clear over and over and over again so that you can never misunderstand what he is saying about Jesus Christ. It should be clear, hopefully, if you worship with us on a regular basis, hopefully it becomes pretty clear what we believe about Jesus. That we believe that Jesus is God. He should be worshipped. That he laid his life down for us and was our substitute for our sin that he was buried and that he rose again and that he's coming again. And it is him who we worship and sing about and sing to and pray. Everything is about him. Hopefully that's clear. We don't just, you know, let you guess at it. We don't just say, well, I guess once a month we will make sure people know who Jesus is. It's just, it's constant. It's all the time. And we want people to know that. And so Matthew wants them to know that. Going on then, the use of the word, sometimes you, you hear the, or you read the phrase, Lord, Lord. Like, you know, there, there's a famous passage in Matthew, this is on the mount where Jesus is speaking, and there's this judgment, and he talks about those who have performed miracles and different things, and they said, Lord, Lord, because things aren't going to go well for them in this judgment. Well, what is meant by the word Lord, Lord? Uh, it appears in Matthew 7, it appears in Matthew 25. Uh, just in the Septuagint, as you look at the New Testament, or any of the Old Testament, um, it occurs 18 times. And every occurrence, the way that it's constructed there, is it's obviously referring to Yahweh. It, it's a reference to God. So in, in that judgment passage, where these individuals are saying to God, Lord, Lord, when did we, and they ask the question, they are, they are, they are addressing God. And that's what's being made clear from that. 
Again, most of the occurrences uh, of Lord, Lord are Greek translations of the title, and it's they, what they're putting together is the name Adonai and the word Yahweh. And we'll talk about that more later. Adonai is another word for a Lord or for, or for God, and we'll talk about what that means and how it's used. Uh, but when you put those two things together, again, it's very clear you're only speaking of one individual, and that is God himself. Matthew frequently also describes people as worshiping Jesus. That, that would kind of go hand in hand with the use of the word Lord. If he's God, he then should be worshiped. He, it's the right thing to worship him. Now, the Greek word that's used there, and it's in the title of the message, which is proskuneo, uh, some will say, well, that word is, just simply means to kneel down. It just simply means that you prostrate yourself before an individual. However, the context of how the word is used suggests that the verb refers to worship of deity. It's not just a bowing down. In the King James translation, the verb proskuneo always is translated as worship. It's always worship in, in, in Matthew. And they actually have a pretty good reason for doing that. Now, the English Standard Version doesn't. Now, it doesn't mean it's heretical, right? So I'm going to read a couple of verses very quickly. Matthew 12, uh, 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. That's the, the word there. Worship is the word proskuneo. Then in Matthew 8, 2, the word is used again, but it's translated differently. It says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So in the English Standard Version, knelt before is the same Greek word, proskuneo. Now, that's not done to necessarily take away from the idea that he's being worshipped. We will see this as we kind of move on. It, again, my belief is that it's best, even if you have to in parentheses, write in your Bible and, and use the word worship. Because this is not just a kneeling down out of respect. Okay, that's what's important. It's not just a kneeling down out of respect. But it's still a correct translation uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the Greek word. Matthew 9, verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Then Matthew 14, beginning in verse 32. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So the translators then in that passage say, Well, it's clear they're worshipping him because of what they've just experienced. And they say, You are the Son of God. So they take proskuneo, and they translate it worship there because that's clearly what's going on. Again, Matthew 20, uh, Matthew 20, 20, we have the mother of the sons of Zebedee. They come to him with her sons, kneeling before him. She asked him for something. Uh, but then in Matthew 28, in verse 9, it says, Behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And then Matthew 28, 17, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So that's the usage of the word proskuneo, not all of them. But this kind of gives an idea of what's going on with the English version again in the in the, New, in the King James, it's always worship. But that word is important because that word is not used lightly. Again, especially in the context of communicating with a, with a Jewish audience. Again, they're not the only ones that are going to be reading Matthew, but that is the target audience for Matthew. 
And so that would take on great significance when they come across that word. And again, Matthew, as he narrates the story of Jesus, again, over and over again, uses the word Lord to drive home the point who he is, and then also mentions all these stories where these people are coming and kneeling before him, or they are worshiping him. What's going on there? Why is he doing that? Uh, he's making sure he does that. First of all, it is important to note that historically, in the cultural, in the cultural context, this bowing down poses problems for people who view that people are merely bowing before Jesus or kneeling as a sign of respect. The reason why that's a problem culturally, meaning in the Jewish culture, is they don't do that. They don't kneel before people. Most first century Jews objected to paying homage to kings and other mere human authorities in that sense. We see a picture of that in the book of Esther. Mordecai refuses to pay homage to Haman. To, to Haman. He won't do it. He's, remember, they're building gallows to hang him. He's not going to do it. Of course, the story has a hilarious twist, but nonetheless, that's what's going on there. The Jewish stance was so strong and was universal. There was, in other words, it was not viewed as just a bunch of rebellious people. Caligula, not exactly a man of real reason and of a sound mind, recognized this Jewish stance because he kind of put out a decree and the decree was that all the Roman citizens, all the Roman subjects actually, had to fall down when he walked by in adoration. They had to fall down before him and he exempted one group, the Jews. Because he knew, A, they wouldn't do it, and if you defy this order, you got to kill him, and he's just not going to kill half the population or more. He just because it's not going to be good good economics. Uh, you know, you're, you're killing your tax base basically. So he's not going to do that. But here you can see that he recognized how deeply ingrained. So when you go back to the reading of Matthew and you come across this word proskuneo, this bowing before Jesus and kneeling before him, that's not some you know, like an oriental greeting. Like if you were to Japan, you meet somebody, you would bow out of respect when you would greet them. That's not worship, but you would bow before them. And that is respect. But in the Jewish culture, especially during this time, they did not do that. There were no exceptions. Zero exceptions. In fact, later, uh, after the uh, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, uh, there was a time when, uh, I'm not sure how it came about, but the Romans thought it would be a good idea to put up a lot of their shields up on the wall of Jerusalem. And the problem with that is these shields were kind of equal in the height to the temple. And the Jews just, they weren't going to have that. You are not going to elevate anything above the temple or above God. And so they kind of had a big meeting. Uh, and I think it was, Pilate was still there. And they weren't happy. And, and they weren't going to just go home and have dinner. And so there's this famous incident where basically 3,000 of the most prominent Jewish men in Jerusalem were slaughtered at that moment because they just, they would not back down. And it was only a few months later, Pilate was gone. And he was already on his way out because of this huge fiasco with Jesus from our point of view. But from the Roman point of view, he's just lost control. This thing with Jesus, now these things with these, what are you doing? And so he's gone. And so this is deeply ingrained with them. So that's, that's a significant thing in our understanding of Matthew and what he's writing and what he's trying to say. 
Now, you might, be, you might be asking yourself, why are you going over all this? I mean, what's the deal? Well, here's the deal. When your kids go off to college, if you have friends who attend maybe a liberal church, they're going to hear something like this. The King James reveals the prejudicial bias of the translators by using the word worship. That's not an honest translation. It's a commentary. It is someone's interpretation of what is going on. A more honest approach is to simply translate the word as bow respectfully. This idea that Christ must be worshipped or is the only way or is God is overstating things. Things like that are said in churches. There are, and I guarantee you, they're said in college classes, whether that is a secular college and in some colleges where they call themselves a Christian college. They're going to hear that. You're going to hear this argument from this Greek word proskuneo and tell you that really it just means to bow. That's the, all that it means, just merely to do that. And they're trying to diminish or de-emphasize all of this focus on Jesus and the uniqueness of Jesus, which and oftentimes the, the main problem for people is this idea that, that he is God. It happens. We need to be aware of these things. That this is not just, you know, that, that was not the bias of the King James translators. There, there was an understanding there of that word and how it's being used and what Matthew's doing. When we recognize this, we need to realize that, you know, someone may come with the argument that, well, that was just a late addition to Christianity, or they just add that in for emphasis because they were trying to, no, that's, no, that's not what's going on. This is all legitimate. This is historically accurate and correct. Of course, we have great respect for Jesus as a teacher, they may say. They might even like him as a rabbi. And he certainly is an example. But let's not pretend that the Bible is saying more than it really is. That's their argument. And there are individuals who buy into that. Remember, we have a sin nature. There are some individuals who are raised in Christian homes. And their ears are itching to hear something like that. So they can ease their conscience and walk away from the Lord. And they just, they'll never want to think about it again. And again, people are exposed in Sunday school classes, in sermons, and obviously the internet, and a lot of other places. So we need to be aware of this and have an understanding of this. Secondly, in the usage and the translation of this Greek word, proskuneo, the setting often suggests that the verb worship is intended. And it is meant really in the highest sense. The obvious one was what I read to you from Matthew 14. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. But also, thirdly, the verb worship, proskuneo, clearly means more than disrespectful bowing. So when you look at some of the theological dictionaries, so you have dictionaries of Greek words. Many individuals are familiar with Strong's Dictionary, where it gives you just basically a sentence of the basic meaning of a Greek or Hebrew word. But then you have other dictionaries that will go into its theological use. And they will give a much deeper, broader definition. And some of them, they get into the history of how that word was used in secular society, how it was used in Jewish society, and how it was used by Christians, and how it's been used by Christian theologians to show you some of the differences to help us to, to grasp what's being said. So in the complete word study, Greek New Testament, proskuneo means to worship to show respect, to fall, or prostrate oneself. 
Then it goes on and says, literally, to kiss towards someone or to throw a kiss in token of respect or homage. The ancient Oriental, especially Persian, Persian mode of salutation between persons of equal ranks was to kiss each other on the lips. When the difference of rank was slight, they kissed each other on the cheek. And when one was much inferior, he fell upon his knees, touched his forehead to the ground, or prostrated himself, throwing kisses at the same time toward the superior. So all of that is just giving you a background of that word, where that word came from. In Kittle's Theological Dictionary, which is a dictionary of just New Testament words, it's ten volumes. Um, it's pretty big. It gives you, first of all, the meaning of this word for the Greeks, in, the, in a secular sense. The ancient term for reverent adoration of gods, which in the case of various deities would mean stooping to kiss the earth. So you can already see in the secular usage of the word, when an individual comes along and says, well, all this means is to bow respectfully, they're being intellectually dishonest. They're, they're, they're keeping back information because they want to formulate an idea in the minds of the individuals that they're speaking to. They, this goes on and says the Greeks abandoned the outward gesture to keep the term for the inner attitude. And then later the word takes on a much more general sense expressing love and respect. So they're expressing to you how that word kind of changed through time. Then there's the Jewish understanding of that word. He says, in, or they say, the Septuagint uses the term for various words meaning to bow, to kiss, to serve, and to worship. Most of the instances relate to veneration of the God of Israel or of false gods. It also may be directed to angels, to the righteous, to rulers, to the prophets, like, like, uh, like Samuel, because it expresses regard or suggests that those who are honoring are in some way the instrument of God. And so there's always, again, the connection with God here. And then they get into how this word is used in the New Testament. And it says in the New Testament, proskuneo is used only in relation to a divine object. Those who seek help from Jesus fall at his feet. This is more than a gesture of respect. The wise men bow in worship. The tempter seeks the worship that belongs to God. The disciples worship Jesus when they begin to grasp his divine sonship and when they meet the risen Lord. The thought of God's transcendence forbids any weakening of the term in the New Testament. The angel forbids this kind of bowing or worship in Revelation 19. And Peter, where the gesture is expressly mentioned in Acts chapter 10, beginning in 25, reads this way, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. So what we see there is, is what is being emphasized that we already hopefully know and accept, and that is Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, and he is to be worshipped. Yes, falling on our knees, falling prostrate, or whether you want to talk about an inner attitude of the heart, it's not just out of respect because we think he's a good teacher. We are worshiping him. We've come to bow before him. We are thanking him and praising his name for our salvation, for his goodness, his greatness, his majesty. That's what's involved. We need to make sure there's no mistake about that. As we raise our children, we want our children to have a great respect for Jesus, but not just respect for Jesus. We want them to know who he is and that he is God. We want to make sure that's clear in no uncertain terms. 
Not like the Mormons that he became a God. He is God who's come in the flesh. Not like how the world talks about Jesus. This is how the Bible talks about Jesus. And that's why we talk about Jesus in the same way. So as believers, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus is portrayed as Lord worthy of worship on multiple occasions. And so we read this and we understand and we rejoice. For the non-believer who reads this, many of them also, without any instruction, gather that pretty quickly, that, that who Jesus is and how he's being represented. So again, when it comes to the world, remember that to believe in Jesus, that's not enough because I, no one knows what you mean by that. We say, I believe in Jesus. What we talk about when it comes to salvation is, I put my faith, I put my trust in Jesus. We sometimes use the phrase, the person and the work of Jesus. What we're referring to is the person. He is God come in the flesh, lived this perfect life. His work is he came to be my substitute, to be your substitute for my sin, your sin, and took on the punishment that we deserve. And he then died. And he was then buried. And then he was raised from the dead. And he would die never again. And I put my trust in the truth of that. I believe in what he did. That he died for my sin. And because of that, God says, if I believe that, I then am forgiven of all of my wrongdoing. When I die, I will go to heaven, not because I'm a pastor, not because I've read my Bible several times, not because I pray faithfully, and not because I've been to church just about every Sunday of my entire existence. No, it is because of what Christ has done. I am as undeserving as anyone else. We are all undeserving of this. It always points to the fact that God is good. Don't we have a great love and respect to others who are good to our children? If they're good to our grandchildren, we love them because of their goodness to our, those that we love. We love and cherish God because of his, our salvation, my salvation points to him and his goodness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for the unbelievable clarity of your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is not a secret that Jesus is God and that he should be worshipped. We thank you that it is explained to us and manifested to us, revealed to us in so many ways. We thank you that it is even declared outright. And so, Father, we ask as we continue our study in the scripture and read it, now, Father, these things will become much more clear to us and will cause our hearts to rejoice. We are glad for it, Father, because Christ is worthy. And because he is worthy, his sacrifice for us has been accepted. Father, we ask now that you would, as we bring our time to a close, that you will bless and that your word would continue to linger in our hearts and minds. And Father, perhaps there may be one or two or maybe a few who have never placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that perhaps they would read Matthew on their own. We ask, Lord, that you would reveal to them who Christ is, 
that it would leap off the pages of Scripture. And Lord, their hearts would be turned and they would understand why Christ has died for them and put their faith and trust in him. We pray, Lord, in your mercy and grace, you will save them by your grace. And so, Father, we ask now you bless as we sing our closing hymn. We do ask these things in Christ's name.